Psalm 122 tonight. Psalm 122. Not all that long, and you're familiar with some of it. Some of it, I'm sure. Psalm 122. Follow, please, as I begin in verse one. I was glad when they said unto me, "Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones, for there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper who love thee. Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Well, we are now into the third of the so-called Psalms of Degrees or Ascent. Uh, the word could be translated either one of those or maybe steps. And as I said, there are several theories as to how these came to be known by that. <clears throat> One is, is that these 15 psalms were sung by the priest as they ascended the 15 steps into the temple. That's possible. Don't think that's likely, but it's possible. Uh, secondly, uh, another theory is, this is psalms that were sung by the remnant that returned to Jerusalem from Babylon under Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity. That's possible. I don't think very likely, and you'll notice that uh, here's a psalm that tends to uh, favor that it's not that, in that notice the temple is clearly standing. Let's go into the house of the Lord. Uh, the temple is standing when this is being written. But, of course, it may have been put into a collection later on that would be sung by those returning refugees. That's possible. The third theory, which is the one I tend to favor, is that these are psalms that are sung by the Jews as they would make their way to Jerusalem to attend the festivals, the feast days, three times a year when they were required to come to Jerusalem. Um, there are several things here. Notice the verse 4, talking about the tribes going up. To Jerusalem, That would certainly seem to fit the circumstance and the situation of these uh, annual pilgrimages that you would make up to Jerusalem. It is clearly a happy psalm. You say, well, why wouldn't they all be happy? Well, think back in verse uh, chapter 120. Psalm number 120 is anything but happy. If you set that to a tune, you'd want to set it to a minor key, for it is a plaintive, it is the complaint. Of the psalmist. But here in Psalm 122, it is clearly a psalm of joy. It fits well the festive mood of the people as they would come to Jerusalem during these three occasions, the last one being the Feast of Tabernacles, which was, by all indication, the most joyous time of the Jewish year. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. I'm going to split this up into two sections. First of all, verse 1 through 5 that deals with what I call the joy at the end of the journey. We've sort of uh, 
tried to apply this so it's not just something that's, well, it's a long time ago and somebody did something back then, but to apply it to our circumstances. Because, as we well know, the idea of a journey becomes a very good depiction of the Christian life. John Bunyan, of course, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, probably popularized that idea more than any other, but he's simply picking up on biblical things. Um, The idea of the Exodus, Israel being in captivity and bondage, they're journeying across the wilderness heading to Canaan. That's one picture of this journey. Uh, We have the same thing at the end of the Babylonian captivity when they're now returning from the other direction. Captivity and bondage over there. They're returning again back to their homeland, back to rebuild the temple. So we have this sort of theme of God's people on the move. They're they're making a, a journey. We are taught in the New Testament that we're to think of ourselves as pilgrims. And I'm not talking about the guys that dressed up in the funny hats and suits and so forth on the Mayflower but pilgrims in the sense that we are not from here. We are strangers in the sense that we are not citizens of this land. We're foreigners, or perhaps a better word to fit our circumstances today is the word tourist. You're a tourist. When you're, when you're a tourist, you don't expect to be anywhere very long, and therefore you don't make any permanent arrangements. I keep thinking about stopping at a gas station you know, somewhere between here and Timbuktu, wherever you're going, and going out behind the gas station, digging a hole and put some money in the ground. And you're saying, well, why, why are you doing that? Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put it here just in case I come back this way. But you're never coming back this way. You, you would not make any kind of permanent provision in a circumstance like that. You're, you're simply passing through. As a kid, some of you come from my generation, Fewer and fewer of you as time goes on, but uh, we used to sing the old song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Great, great song. Can anybody else think of any pilgrim songs? Janet? I'm just a poor wayfaring Pilgrim or strangers, depends on which version you sing. Beulah Land. Now that's a strange one. Now Beulah Land, but yeah, it, it speaks of this land that we're headed to. I have that problem myself, yeah. But a lot of... Surely goodness and mercy. Now, it's it's similar, similar thing. I'm thinking uh, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, cast the wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land. Notice that's using that very thing we talked about earlier, moving from captivity and bondage into Canaan. Um, Oh, there's others. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And that fits this psalm. Just perfectly. So you notice that we've got a lot of traveling. You know, what was the old comedian used to say when it's time to exit a little traveling music? Uh, Well, we've got some traveling music to journey by that fits the theme. And so 
in, in trying to apply these song, psalms of ascent, I'm trying to apply them to our spiritual journey. And back to Psalm 120, there was a reason why we make the journey in the first place. And it's because we are disaffected. We are unhappy with where we are. Notice you remember back in Psalm 120, there's three things going on. He's sick and tired of the lies. He's sick and tired of living in a place under the wrath of God in judgment. And then thirdly, he's sick and tired of being in a place where there is no peace. They're always at war. And those three things are characterizing why would you pick up and go? Why would you leave your home and make this journey? I I was thinking earlier today how this fits the circumstance when David was on the run from King Saul. And you remember for a while, the first time, he went down to the Philistines and they uh, recognized him, saying, hey, wait a minute, this is the guy that they used to sing songs about in Israel. Uh, And David began to babble and scrabble at the gate, let a little spittle dribble down upon his beard, you know, the the story, so that they uh, thought he was insane and drove him out of there. And where does he wind up? In the caves of Adullam, or Adullam, as the Jews would say which is not just one cave, been there, it's, it's a whole, it's like, it's like a prairie dog town. It's a whole hillside, must be hundreds of caves. And uh, so he holds up, I mean literally we talk about somebody holding up, he holds up in a cave, no less, and we read over there in 1 Samuel that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discomfited, came to him and made him a captain over them. Now let that sink in. These folks have a bone to pick with somebody. They're either in trouble, they're in debt, or they're just plumb unhappy. And so they flock to David, 400 of them we read, and make him a captain over them. And so that's the situation. We've got us, the psalmist is leaving because I'm unhappy with where I am. Well, tonight we get a glimpse of where we're heading. And we see the glory, the joy that is out there ahead of us. Now, you might say that who can come? Who can make this pilgrimage? Well, whosoever will may. But who will make this pilgrimage? Those that are in distress, those that are in debt, those that are discomforted. That's who's going to leave. Nobody else is going to make this trip. It's too much trouble. If you're happy where you are, you will never leave. It is only those whose eyes by grace have been opened to their distress, their debt, their discomfort. They're the ones who will make this pilgrimage that we're talking about. So tonight we uh, set off and we're looking at the destination. This uh, glorious city of Jerusalem. Notice verse 1. It begins with the plural. When we were back in verse 120, it was a solitary complaint of an individual. Now in verse in chapter 122, notice the plurals here. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse 2, our feet shall stand within thy gates. Do you understand that the pilgrim who sort of is seen in a solitary sense in chapter 120 now is being joined by other pilgrims who are making their way. And notice in verse 4, all the tribes are headed 
there to this place. They are coming there, and the King James here, I think, sort of mistranslates this middle phrase of verse 4. It says, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel. I think the right way to understand it is because of the testimony of Israel. And If you've got an NIV or ESV or uh, one of the more modern versions, you'll see that they are making the journey uh, because this is part of what they've been commanded to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16, you'll read that all the males in Israel were required to make an appearance in Jerusalem three times a year. And they would go in the spring, that cluster of feasts around Passover. They would go in the summertime, the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, they would call it, and then in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so all the males were required to make this journey, and they're doing this as they've been commanded. Now, why are they going there? I was thinking, I'm, to be quite honest, I don't really like crowds that much. I'm sort of a solitary guy. I mean, do you like crowds? I mean, a lot of people must because you go down the Liberty Bowl, I mean, you got all these thousands of people there watching football games. Some of you guys go to a concert, you got scads of people there. Um, I'm, I'm the type just rather sit home. Maybe that's my age showing. Rather watch it on TV. I don't like crowds. But I'm the, apparently, I'm the weird one. That's not news to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, because here, notice in the Scripture, the psalmist is reveling in the fact that he is not going up to the house of the Lord alone. He has others to make the journey with, and that all the tribes of Israel are making their way there too. You'll notice that they've not gone there, and I'm thinking of, you know, the million man march that the black Muslims did a few years ago, or the recent civil rights, the commemoration of Martin Luther King's speech. We have all these thousands that flood to the Capitol. Most of the time when we have thousands of people that flock to the Capitol, what are they there for? To demonstrate, to protest. They don't like what's going on. And notice that here, the thousands that are flocking to Jerusalem are not going there to demonstrate. They're not going there because they're unhappy. They're going there to celebrate. They're going there, notice in the last part of verse 4, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. It is a national time of thanksgiving. I, I think it would be helpful for us to try to put ourselves in the shoes, or more accurately, the sandals, of those who would have made this kind of pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, let's say that we're living in a place like Jesus, Nazareth, uh, when he is 12 years old, because we know that he made the trip to Jerusalem uh, with his parents, and apparently they didn't go alone, probably most of Nazareth. Uh, and, and the reason I say this is because we do have some accounts. Uh, for instance, the Roman general Cestius, when he marched against Jerusalem about 66 A.D., he came upon certain towns. He's right at Passover. He's in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles. He came to certain towns that were absolutely deserted. There wasn't anybody there. Everybody had gone up to Jerusalem. 
And so the idea is, is that typically your whole village, if they possibly can, everybody leaves and heads to Jerusalem. And I can imagine being a boy of 12 or so, what an exciting time this would be. Because having grown up on the farm, most of the time is boring. But to go to the big city, to go where the action is, where the bright lights are. And in Israel, Jerusalem is the place. I mean, it's the place where it's happening. To get to go and make a trip like that for a boy of 12 years old would have been, well, just phenomenal. You've got about three days of walking, and so you're camping along the trail. Notice in Psalm 121, we talked about the psalmist asking for God's help in the journey, looking to the hills, asking him for his safety, for his preservation, because this travel... Not like there's a Holiday Inn, you know, on every corner. Uh, You're going to be staying outside. It's going to be dark. Uh, But again, for a boy of 12, my, what what a wonderful time. What a wonderful experience. So you're going to spend about three days walking towards Jerusalem. And almost in every direction you come from, you're going to have to go up to Jerusalem. And as you get closer, you are being, your party is being joined by other villages other places, you get the picture, everybody is funneling towards Jerusalem. And so the closer you get, your numbers are getting bigger and bigger. The people that you're walking with just getting larger and larger. Josephus, from him we can sort of get an estimate that Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was probably about a town of 50,000 people which is a large city in that day. But there would be over a 100,000 pilgrims flocked to Jerusalem for these feasts. And can you just imagine that? One of the reasons that Herod enlarged the Temple Mount, uh, when he got through with it, it's about 36 acres in all. And one of the reasons is in order to accommodate these 100,000 Pilgrims that had come there to assemble in the temple, in the temple area, the courtyard. So can you imagine what a massive crowd this would have been? The joy of these feasts, the old rabbis would say, you haven't seen joy till you were in Jerusalem for the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because that was the day when the priests would take those big vessels and walk down the hill to the Pool of Siloam fill those vessels with water, and come back and pour them on the altar in the courtyard there in Jerusalem with all the people singing the psalms, singing with joy, withdraw the water of salvation out of the wells of God. What a, what a time. Can you imagine what, the, what it must have been like? And so you understand why the psalmist gets all excited here. This is his glory. This this is the time of joy. Maybe we're nothing when we're weak and scattered and we're out here in places like Nazareth, uh, Nowheresville, Podunk, as we would say. But this place is our capital. This place uh, is where our nation has its center. This is what gives us our identity. And most importantly, this is where our God manifests himself in his house. Here's where we go to stand and make a presentation of ourselves. 
in the presence of our God. I don't know if it ever crosses your mind what a blessing it is that you and I are not making our pilgrimage by ourselves. That we have others to walk with us. We have others to help us when we fall and when we stumble, to encourage us to keep going when we get weary and tired. Um, Notice that there is just the perception that God's people want to congregate. I mean, we can talk about the church all day long, but the basic idea of a church is it's an assembly. And an assembly that never assembles is a contradiction in terms. A church that doesn't church. A congregation that never congregates. Notice the whole assumption is that God's people love to be together. And the more the merrier. I shared with you, uh, I think, uh, some somebody somewhere a week or so ago, a comment uh, D.A. Carson uh, passed along about an Indian believer from one of the huge cities in India. And he was, I think, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and asking the, how many people are in Vancouver? I don't know, a million? And he said, don't you get lonely? Because you see over there in India, millions, nothing. In other words, here is a completely different... We're, we're trying to get to the suburbs. We're trying to spread our wings. And to this Indian Christian, man, it, it is wonderful if we can all be on top of one another. No, did you catch this text? Verse 3. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. It is compacted. It's tight. Part of the glory of Jerusalem is that it's crowded. People are on top of everybody. What a, what a strange idea to our Western way of thinking. But the Eastern man just rebels. Do you realize the original city of David was about 16 acres? A couple of thousand people at most. By Jesus' day, it's grown, spread to around 400 acres, but still... When you think of a town of 50,000 people in our day, how large would a city like that be? Several square miles in our culture. And there in 400 acres, you have this city of 50,000 fixing to be impacted by 100,000 guests in vision. This is Woodstock for you hippies out there. I mean, that's what it would be like. You just have people, masses of people, And the psalmist is saying, man, isn't that something? Isn't it wonderful that we get to be together? You say, well, I don't know about that. I'd I'd rather be out there in the back 40. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I don't know if you're going to like heaven if you don't like the saints. All right, let's go to the second half here. The second half of this, starting in verses 6 through 9, is a prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, it doesn't carry with it in English this sort of the, the wording that's in Hebrew, but there's this shaol is prayer or pray. Shalom is peace, of course. Jerusalem 
the city of peace. Prosperity is the word shalal. So you hear all those shah, shal, shalom, jerushalayim, shalal. If you were to say this, and I can't do it as it needs to be done in Hebrew, but you would have this this uh, similar sound weaving its way through this entire verse. Notice that the prayer is for the peace and the prosperity of Jerusalem. You're familiar with the Hebrew greeting shalom, which carries with it that, that connotation. It is your blessing on someone or something. You recall when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. He talked about, let your blessing come upon the place where you're staying, but if they're not worthy, then take your blessing back. In other words, the idea is you greet people with a shalom. You, you bless them. And so here, the psalmist is praying for the peace and the prosperity. That is the blessing of Jerusalem. Well, a good question is, does this apply to the Jerusalem today that is over there in the Middle East. Uh, we often hear it applied that way, but uh, I would say, well, wait a minute. Let's note a couple of things here in the psalm. First of all, the Jerusalem that is being blessed in the prayer for peace and prosperity in verse 1 is where the house of the Lord stands. Notice verse 9, because of the house of the Lord our God I will seek thy good. It is where God was making his presence manifested. Uh, that house, in case you haven't noticed, is not there anymore. In fact, it would appear that God vacated the premises some time ago. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus will refer to the temple as his father's house. You know, you've made my father's house. A, supposed to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. But at the end of chapter 23 of Matthew, he says, Your house is left to you desolate. There is this consigning it to judgment that is occurring. Not one stone will be left upon another. We see the veil rending in the temple at the death of our Lord. And I know a lot of times we think, well, that means now that we can go in. But uh, it's interesting that the Jews didn't interpret it that way. They saw it as a sign, an omen that God was leaving them, that God was forsaking them, that His glory is departing. You see a similar thing going on in Ezekiel's prophecy of the glory leaving the uh, Holy of Holies to the threshold, then to the Mount of Olives, and finally leaving the city. You have a similar situation. In other words, let's, let's ask ourselves... Uh, is it this place where that Muslim shrine sits, we call the Dome of the Rock, uh, isn't that a rather strange thing to be praying? Is it that city that is to be blessed? Well, I think the idea of praying for the peace of Jerusalem is a valid thing if we remember which Jerusalem we're talking about. And it really doesn't matter your eschatology, whether you're pre-post or ah. Uh, pretty much everybody is in agree, agreement that there is coming a day of glory for Jerusalem. Whether that is during millennium, as the pre-mills would say, whether it is during the eternal state, uh, as the amils generally say, 
in other words, everybody's in agreed that what's there now is not the blessed city. I, I tend to be an all but I tend to see that even in the eternal state, that there is an earthly side to that eternal state. Let me try to state it a, a little better than that. That what we call heaven is not something that's going to be way out yonder. I'm assuming you all know what yonder I, I I can't assume that all the time. I was in Wyoming, you know, for a number of years. And remember one day uh, we were driving around looking for some deer with another family. And I said, look at that deer over yonder. And the little boy in the back says, Mom, what's yonder? He had no clue. But anyway, let me go back to that, that idea. We tend to think as heaven as something that's out there, out yonder. And the idea is that heaven will be a new heaven and a new earth. That there is a physical side to heaven. That there is this renewed earth. I don't see any sense in why you and I are going to get a new body if heaven doesn't have a physical side to it. What's the point? If we're just going to float on clouds with harps like angels, you understand? The very fact that you and I are going to get a body. Remember, we've been talking about Sunday morning that man is this strange creature that is a combination of a spiritual nature and a fleshly nature. That's man's definition. That's what we were made to be. A liaison, if you will, between God and His created world, His created universe. So that we are capable of ruling over the created universe for God. So there's a physical side to our eternal existence. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? There's a reason we get a new body. But are we going to be have a new body just to float in space? Well, the Scripture is telling us, no, there'll be a new earth that goes along with this. So basically what I'm trying to drive at is, yeah, I believe there will be a Jerusalem... There is one right now. I don't need to remind you, I trust, that Paul says there are two. Those two wives of Abraham, this allegory, speaks of two covenants and two Jerusalems. One down here on earth, which is in bondage with her children, and the other, the Jerusalem above, the mother of us all. It would seem that that is that city that we read about in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was looking for. He called himself a pilgrim and a stranger. He's looking for a city whose builder and ruler is God. And a little later on in Hebrews 11, God, because of these people, are calling themselves strangers and pilgrims on this earth. God is not ashamed. He's made them a city. He's prepared them a city. Then in Hebrews 12, just another chapter away, we see that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to a Mount Zion in the heavens, to angels and so forth. You follow my drift here? In other words, yes, pray for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. Let's remember which one. The one that is our home. If you look at why he's praying this prayer, he gives you basically three reasons. Number one, he does it because it's his home. He loves Jerusalem, verse 6. And then in verse 8, he does it because this is where his family lives, his brethren, his companions. This is his people that are living there. 
And then thirdly, he does it because this is where God's name is there in Jerusalem. And so for his own sake, for the sake of his brethren, for the sake of God, he prays for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. And then, of course, turn to Revelation 21. You know this. Let's read it. However, Revelation 21, verse 1, this final state of things. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New, you find what I call this covenant formula where God will say, I will be their God. What's the rest of it? They shall be my people. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Now we see the fulfillment of it. Notice, they are His and He is theirs and He is tabernacling among them. Now you say, well, does that mean that in heaven we're going to have this place to go? You know, God's going to be a temple over here and He's going to be dwelling over there and we've got to make this trip to get to Him. Later on in chapter 21, and I won't go through the details, I trust you know them, there is this city being described as four square, a perfect cube, about 1,200 miles on a side. And that alone tells us a lot. Because in the architecture of Israel, the only time you had a cube was either in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies or in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And that what is being described is that the whole city has become the Holy of Holies. That rather than there being a temple in it, says John, the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple of it. You hear the difference? There's no spot in this city where God dwells. It's that the city is dwelling, as it were, immersed in the very glory of God and the Lamb. There's no need of the sun, for the glory of, the, of God lights the place. Do, do you see the symbolism? That what's this describing is that finally, in the final state, we are immersed in the presence of our God. That alone would be a very uncomfortable thought for a lot of people. Because they want to go to heaven in order to miss hell. Or they want to go to heaven and have a little log cabin back there in the back 40. They don't want to be too close to Jesus. That would be a little bit uncomfortable. Well, folks, i got news for you. What I'm telling you turns out to be true, that what you're seeing here is you're going to be living in the house. You're going to be living in this city, in this place where God's people are immersed in the very presence of God Almighty. It begins to make clear what the old Puritans used to say, that if 
you're going to heaven, you better get ready now. That we have this hope, this thirst for God now. We tend to think that one of these days I'm going to die and this tremendous transformation will take place and I'll want spiritual things then. No. When you die, you're going to lose something, a body. You're not going to gain anything. That new heart, that regenerated nature has to occur now to prepare you for heaven then. And may that be by God's grace that this happens. All right, I've just sort of skimmed over some of this, but uh, any comments, any anything strike you in this? Well, it, let me put it this way, Barry, uh, that it would be synonymous with what we're told to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. With that God's kingdom come, that it prosper, that it come, as we would think, when it prospers, it increases, it extends, both inwardly and outwardly. And so there is a sense in which we are to pray for the extension of God's kingdom in the earth. Any other thing cross your mind? Just speechless, I see. Stunned silence. Yes, sir. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, that is a difficult area. And it's one of those things we think we know all about it, and then when you start trying to pin it down. Second Corinthians 5 is where Paul talks about the fact that if uh, this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a house not made with hands waiting on us in the heavens. And uh, the question is, is he talking about our final glorified body, which as we learn from other places in the New Testament, doesn't, we don't get that until Christ's return. And uh, the dead in Christ are raised incorruptible. Uh, so the question is, well, is he referring there in that passage to some intermediate body? Some intermediate, is God preparing a temporary clothing. Because what Paul does point out, and I think I made allusion to this a couple of weeks ago, that not that we should be unclothed, he says, but clothed upon with immortality. Um, we tend to think that, you know, getting rid of our body is would be a great thing. But for a human, that is not a... The more you think about that, to be unclothed in the sense of not having a body is a very terrifying thought. At least the more I think about it, the more disturbing that is. It, anybody else feel that? In other words, it'd be like I used the, the illustration of an isolation chamber where you realize your body is your, your medium by which you commune with the physical world and the physical universe through your five senses. And suppose you're in one of these sensory deprivation experiments where 
You have no sight, no sound, no taste, no touch. I personally don't like the sound of that. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to, that not that we would be unclothed. That's not what we're made for. And so whether that passage, Darren, some interpret it to be talking about an intermediate body, um, I don't know. It's very, very difficult. It's more difficult than we, we think it to be. This, the final state, after the resurrection, in other words, when Christ comes back, and notice, they that sleep in Jesus, will He bring with Him. So those who have died in the faith, their soul, are returning with Him to be reunited with a resurrected body. Okay? So there we see the soul, the, as it were, the naked soul clothed upon with the glorified body, finally. But the question is, what about in the meanwhile? What, if, if you kick the bucket tonight, what will be your state? We know we go to be with the Lord, that's not the question. But in what state do we go to be with the Lord? That's picture and revelation of the souls under the altar. But notice it's the souls that are under the altar. The souls of these who have been martyred for the cause of Christ. It's interesting that consistently the New Testament never refers to man as man without the body. You may be the spirits of men made perfect there in Hebrews 12, or the souls of men there in the passage Joe's talking about. But to be a man, I mean that in the generic sense, it's our soul and our body. So it's, it, there is a mystery, and it's not nearly as easy as we like to make it out to be. Well, he says there you'll be like the angels, and uh, but I don't think he means in nature, but you'll be like the angels in the sense that they neither marry nor give in marriage. That's right. That's what he's talking about. So, Sharon, things are going to look up in heaven. Yeah, the eternal state. Yeah, things are getting better. <laughs> Time goes on. Unless you're a Mormon, then you're married for eternity. You know, that's the problem. Yeah. Barry, is that you back there? Well... It, it, I think it's historical, but keep in mind there are some elements to it that tend would make me think that this is a some telling us something in figurative terms, but that at the same time it's historical in the sense that Jesus never used personal names in parables. 
So this would seem to indicate that these are actual people and this actually happened, and yet the idea that's being expressed there, uh, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, by the way, say that they believe in soul sleep. The only thing that is really teaching you is that the state of the dead are fixed at death. I, my reply was always, yeah, that's certainly true, but that's not all that this is saying. They're conscious. They, they have memory. Uh, the rich man remembers his brothers uh, in misery, in torment. So there's more going on, and yet it, it does seem to have some sort of like parable elements to it, sort of symbolic descriptions. And yet at the same time, it's clearly historical. How did we get on this? I, I opened my big mouth and said, are there any questions? Jim, straighten us out. You're very correct, and in some ways we tend to think more like Gnostics than Christians. The Greek mindset was you're trying to get rid of the body. You want to free the spirit from the body, which is the very opposite of what Christianity is teaching of a redeemed body in which to dwell in eternity. And you're right, there's sort of a, a shall we say, a, a quest for an out-of-the-body experience or whatever you want to call it. Okay, let's go to prayer. Let's uh, pray for ourselves because we need lots of help, as you can see. I th- you know, the, the interesting thing is what we, we are not told everything we want to know. And I'm not sure there's hardly any subject in the Bible that we're told everything I want to know, but I'm told everything I need to know. Yes, ma'am? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the comforting fact is that we will be with the Lord. I'm going to be young. I don't know about you. <laughs> and better looking. And hair. Yeah, I've got, I've got it all mapped out. Yeah. Think of it this way, Sharon, and, and, and I've had a lot of women in particular. I don't have many men say this, but, I'll, but I think we would feel it. If, if, how could I be happy without my wife? Now, what do you mean we're not going to be married in heaven? Or ladies, how could I be happy there without my husband? Well, it's not that your husband's not going to be there, but it's the relationship is not the same. And we think back, I liken it to the fact that when you were little, you had this special toy. Or I got Isaac out of the truck tonight, sound asleep, with his blankie. He cannot imagine life without his blankie. And we all had something. With me, it was a teddy bear. I couldn't imagine going to bed at night without my teddy bear. I haven't thought of that teddy bear in 50 years till tonight. You understand? Hmm? Just, yeah, I'm, I was about to say I would have been about 15. Yeah, that's about when I gave up my teddy bear, right, right in there. <laughs> but, but the thing that I would have seen is so essential to my happiness then, I, haven't, I don't even give it a thought today. And you say, well, what happened? I grew up. 
I have passed from a childlike state to an adult state. And the things that were just so incredibly important to me that I just couldn't imagine life without when I'm a child, I haven't given a thought to now. And I think that's a good illustration of what heaven will be like. That what we're, would we want to go back to that childlike state? I, some of you may say yes, but most of us would say no. I don't want to return there. Having left it, I don't want to go back. And the same thing is true of the eternal state. We would never, ever want to go back to this life. That whatever that life is, is going to be far, far better and more blessed than whatever we've got now. 